Welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. In 2020, the Battle of Ideas charity hosted its annual summer school, the Academy, which for this year only, due to the coronavirus pandemic, was reinvented as an online event with a series of lectures and book discussions exploring the theme psychology and democracy. In this podcast, we feature the opening lecture, The Frightful Crowd, The Psychology of the Masses. Today, discussion of crowds, the demos, and by implication democracy itself, is pervasive. There are debates on how to influence collective actions of the public in the context of coronavirus, a keen focus on explaining crowd behaviour, for example the Black Lives Matter protests and counter-protests, and more widely the mobs said to inhabit and fuel the culture wars, while theorists and commentators regularly worry over the influence that populist figureheads might have on the outlook and actions of mass societies. However, well before the arrival of today's behavioural scientists and social psychologists, the crowd and mass society were often the objects of study in psychological terms. This lecture explores the intellectual history and evolving ideas that have shaped concerns over the frightful crowd. The lecturer is Jacob Reynolds, external affairs manager at the Battle of Ideas charity, a convener of the Academy 2020, and a writer and commentator who specialises in political philosophy. I mean, on this topic, it's hard to know where to begin, but what I want to do is sort of whiz through a period of history where the crowd or the mass became a serious object of study and, more importantly, an object of concern. I want to focus on how it was understood and denigrated, indeed, in specifically psychological terms. Now, as Jim indicated from my introduction, I mean, I'm not a historian. I'm, by training, as it were, a philosopher, so my focus will be more on the intellectual history than the often messy historical reality. If you do feel that I've missed any key historical details that challenge the intellectual narrative, then of course you can take me to task um, once I've finished. Of course, the mob or the multitude has always been treated at best suspiciously by the elite. We can find uh, the basic outlines of this elite suspicion as old or indeed older, but certainly as old as Plato and the beginnings as well of the psychologization of this elite suspicion. So Plato saw the human being as a war between reason and appetite, to put it bluntly. Usually reason would be overwhelmed by the unrestrained demands of appetite. Now this was as much a political parable as a psychological theory. So for Plato, the best, most reasonable men like Socrates were liable to being overwhelmed by the insatiable and unreasonable demands of the mob. The philosopher king for Plato is the doctor of the soul and proper management of politics is paternalistic and therapeutic. It makes people better in their own interests. The other piece of background I want to mention, um, creating really a potted uh, history of ideas, but the other piece of background is that as much as the enlightenment um, constituted what many would term the emancipation of the individual, it was often cast or understood in what especially now we might see as psychological terms. This is especially true of enlightenment empiricism. So Locke stresses the role of impressions in creating the self and that what people experience is paramount. So as much as what I'll come on to discuss as the psychological devaluation 
of the people of the mass, as much as that represents an attack or an undermining of the traditional enlightenment self, it doesn't come completely from nowhere. It doesn't come completely from without that tradition. So bearing all that in mind, the sort of meat of the, of the discussion, um, the major jumping off point for the authors we're discussing is the increasingly crowd-like character of modern society. Even before crowds and crowd psychology became an explicit preoccupation of intellectual interest, the conditions of crowd society were beginning to worry even liberal writers. So consider Alexis de Tocqueville. He said, I see, he's imagining the future. He says, I see an immunerable crowd of like and equal men who revolve on themselves without repose. Each of them withdrawn and apart, exists for himself and himself alone. But above these, an immense tutelary power is elevated, which alone takes charge of assuming their enjoyment and watching over their fate. What, moreover, is John Stuart Mill's dreaded conformity of society, but an expression of fear about the deadening influence of the large powerful crowd on the individual? In less sympathetic, less liberal writers, the strain of snobbery is, is less concealed. It's the mere presence for many intellectuals of the tasteless crowds swarming the theatres, the galleries and the streets in their pitiful Sunday best that arouses their distaste. The masses were, for many intellectuals, considered beyond help. And, and the intellectuals, as Ella Whelan will discuss, I'm sure, in her talk on Lady Chatterley's Lover, the intellectuals preferred unspoiled, natural man. So this is the sense of the crowd as the dark side of modern society. And this is obviously so well explored by John Carey and the intellectuals and the masses, and it provides the backdrop. It underlies the fear of the crowd. This then brings us to Gustave Le Bon, born in 1841, published a book on the reading list, The Psychology of Crowds, in 1895. He was, it has to be admitted, a remarkable polymath and was probably unfairly shunned by the French academic establishment of his day. In addition to this feeling of being an outsider, he was rather clearly formed, by, I think, by three influences. His medical training, his humbling experience in the Franco-Prussian War, and the Paris Commune of 1871. From Lee's, he became, I think, convinced that civilization was always at risk from the stupidity and the effeminacy of the crowd. And that in the modern era, the elite's grip on power was at best tenuous. So in his words, he says, while all our ancient beliefs are tottering and disappearing, while the old pillars of society are giving way one by one, the power of the crowd is the only force that nothing menaces and of which the prestige is continually on the increase. The age we are entering will in truth be the era of crowds. Now, what did he think of crowds? I mean, in one way, his view basically mirrors the etymology of the French word for crowd, fool, when, which is both a group, but also etymologically uh, to be trampled, oppressed, crushed. I'm sure these connotations uh, came to mind when he was discussing it. And this is indeed his view. I mean, another quote from him, from the mere fact that he forms part of an organized crowd, a man descends several rungs in the ladder of civilization. Now, the civilizational me metaphor is ambivalent. It's obviously on the one hand, a regression. It signals the irrationality and horde-like character of the crowd. But we shouldn't forget that Le Bon's also impressed by the capacity of crowd 
for acts of heroism and patriotism. So there's this ambivalence. Now, if with Plato, the distaste, that one side of it of the crowd is nothing new, the Bon, I think, takes things further in three important respects. The first is that he insists on studying the crowd as a new kind of entity. It's not the sum of its parts. It's a new thing, not just comprised by the individuals that make it up. And like anything, it can be studied, understood, dissected scientifically. The second is that as the individual merges into the crowd, the subconscious comes to the fore. The crowd is governed not by reasons, but unconscious impulses. It operates through contagion and suggestion. Feelings and desires catch on, and it thinks in suggestive images, not in words. Again, you might see the link to Plato with the visual myths and allegories that Plato insisted the intellectuals would have to use to guide the multitude. So while the crowd can be understood for the bond, the scientists can at least, it can't be engaged with consciously or rationally. Third, because it acts according to observable scientific laws, the crowd can be manipulated. The elite can understand how it behaves and plant the right suggestions. So in place of the ideal of a rational democratic ordering of society, there'll be the use of devices to subtly shift sentiment. The elites who remember the Bonfields are under attack from all sides. They'll learn to fade into the background as the master manipulators or else they will perish. They'll be tempted to unleash the forces of the crowd, but they'll quickly be overcome if they do. Before we move on, I want to give a quick indication that the Bond's not an isolated reactionary. I mean, first, the feeling of leveling standards, the downsides of equalitization, civilizational degeneration, mass irrationality, all of this gripped all of Europe. Indeed, if you want to go back to last year's Academy, which is lots of it's available online, you'll be able to listen to Tim Black's brilliant lecture, which covered a lot of these similar themes of this feeling of civilizational degeneration. Second, the bomb was read widely in Germany, Austria, the UK, and beyond. Accounts of the period stressed that French crowd psychology, the Bond's crowd psychology, occupied the prime place in European discourse. Indeed, his stress on suggestion, the influence of the unconscious, this caught the imagination of a European reading public who were, to some degree, obsessed with the practice of hypnosis. Then as the 20th century opened, sociology began to take the bond as axiomatic. In the UK, 1908 saw the publication of books by both William McDougall and Wilfred Trotter, who both attempted to use the language of crowd psychology to address this same widespread irrationality they saw. And the same year in Germany saw Georg Simmel publish his sociology, which featured the Bonn-like descriptions of crowds. The slightly complicating factor um, or at least something to take note, is that the same period in the United States is slightly different. It's more straightforward, more pragmatic, less obsessed by the subconscious. Prominent figures like James M. Williams thought that behavior is largely explained by motives. And then I imagine him stating this in quite Puritan language, but motives are based, he says, on instincts which are molded into learning and habit into dispositions. Typical subjects in American psychology and sociology were not riots or stampedes, 
but rote learning, education, medical ethics, and labor relations. So even if in the United States, it is more straightforward, um, I don't think it's for that reason less psychologistic. As the reference to labor relations indicates, sociology and psychology in America was still aimed at providing elites with the tools to manage society. Now, against this backdrop of European thought, at least, particularly the obsession with hypnosis and the focus on the subconscious, the originality of Sigmund Freud is, might seem less pronounced. Indeed, in his 1921 essay, Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego, the work proceeds with approving quotations of McDougall and Le Bon, and much of Freud's own descriptions could be easily been lifted from either of those two authors. What is slightly different though, is the way that Freud places the subconscious on a new and allegedly more scientific footing. Previous authors, and especially you'll have got this sense from reading the Bond, they present suggestibility and contagion as almost magical phenomena. There's no explanation. There's no sense of how they operate. They're just stated. Freud complains. He says gruffly, there's been no explanation of the nature of suggestion. So Freud comes along and with what he always stresses is his experimental psychoanalytic method. He feels he's got a more rigorous, more scientific basis for his theorizing. He doesn't like the Bond sort of pluck explanations out of thin air based on his travels. And he doesn't ex insist on the existence of the subconscious. Now, we don't really have the time to explain in detail the component parts of Freud's theories, but we should note though that the schematism of the person that Freud makes into the ego, the id and the superego, and the emphasis on erotic or libidinal loving energy as the primary source of action, these are in many ways are a scientific and psychological recasting of Plato's theory of the soul. What matters for us um, though, is that the unconscious mind was put on a more scientific footing. Indeed, as I mentioned, much in the tradition of Locke and of the Enlightenment, for Freud, we are shaped by our impressions and experiences. Freud puts forward a mechanism for how this happens, and his mechanism stresses that these experiences, which are so crucial to shaping us, they never really leave us. They remain buried within the surface, incorporated at the subconscious level in the conflict between the ego, id, and superego. So it might seem odd to us now when so many of Freud's specific theories from the primal horde to the Oedipal complex, when they enjoy so little legitimacy. But the major legacy, I think, of Freud's um, work, especially for elite theories of group psychology and mass society, was the scientific or supposedly scientific grounding given to ideas of the unconscious. Now, I have to indicate a bit of a, a gap I'm gonna have to skip over, and that's the influence of the two wars on the story I'm telling of the psychologization of the masses. I mean, crudely and obviously, the destruction of the wars seemed to confirm the assumption that dark, destructive forces lurked under the surface of ordinary life. The period seemed to confirm, both on the left and on the right, and amongst traditional elites and newer or cultural elites, the worst elements of these theories of crowds. Indeed, Freud himself, looking back on the destruction of World War I, and anticipating to some degree the destruction of the second, famously revisited his psychology and first proposed the existence of a death drive and second insisted that there was an irreconcilable conflict 
between individual and society, the irreconcilable conflict that he talks about in the 1929 work, Civilization and Its Discontent, which was apparently originally entitled The Uneasiness of Civilization. And that's what he revisited and went back to. Now, especially for elites, the two wars and the prevailing sense of equalitarianism, that is sort of sense of not just of equality as an idea, but as an increasing social reality, meant they had to find or were preoccupied with finding new ways to govern the mass society. Crucial, of course, were the TV and the radio, not least because they promised elites direct or personal access into every individual home. So whether attempting to sell products or beaming the British royal coronation into homes around the world, the new model saw elites related to isolated individuals, not to society, isolated in their homes, and stressed appealing to drives, feelings, jealousies, fears. In other words, appealing to individuals psychologically conceived. As B.F. Skinner, who we'll hear about from Dr. Goldberg, as B.F. Skinner puts it in the preface um, that he added to Warden to, he sort of captures this mood. He says, the really important questions facing the world today are, not question, are questions not about economics or government, but about the daily lives of human beings. A key part of this story of how post-war elites related to the masses was of course the marketing and PR efforts so thoroughly implemented, especially in the United States. Edward Bernays, Freud's nephew, became a crucial figure, advising corporations, celebrities, and presidents in creating the new discipline of public relations. Ernest Dichter, self-described disciple of Freud's, pioneered the field of motivational research to help companies sell products. Together, they represented a prevailing ideology that saw people as driven by irrational sub or even unconscious impulses that could be exploited. Now these methods and the, especially the centrality of them to post-war capitalism, given the spectre of overproduction, these are of course well detailed by Vance Packard and so I'll leave Professor Woodhausen to shed some light on them a little later. But what's often missed I think is that this wasn't conceived as an immoral enterprise. To the contrary, the satisfaction of consumer desires was understood as the way to create a healthier, more secure, happier society. One's reminded, I think, of that famous scene, or to my mind it's famous anyway, the famous scene in Mad Men where Don Draper insists that the essence of advertising is to say, whoever you are, whatever you do, it's okay. Advertising becomes the cure for our nostalgia, the reassurance of our sexual potency, the cradle of our dreams. Bernays, as it happens, tried to get public relations accredited as a medical discipline. So again, like a psychologized Plato, this was the therapeutic paternalism of crowd psychology. Now, when the elite so brazenly understood its role in these terms, it's hardly surprising that many of the post-war radicals were sort of horrified by this sense of mass manipulation. What is perhaps surprising though, is that they fought this psychological manipulation in the name of psychology. However, I mean, since World War II, establishment liberals and to some degree the new radicals were united in believing that there was a psychological explanation to the appeal of fascism and the success of fascist manipulation and propaganda. Echoing the Bonds identification of the tendency for crowds to crave harsh leadership, the new radicals invented the notion of the authoritarian personality. They were convinced that tendencies useful to fascism 
lay hidden inside the modern individual and were merely waiting for an opportunity to rise to the surface. This, however, very quickly became the self-conscious deployment of psychological categories, not just to explain how things had sometimes gone wrong, but also to explain the alleged resistance of the masses to progressive change going forward. This wasn't a trend just isolated to the Frankfurt School. As indeed, as one account stresses, social psychology was widely integrated into the civil rights movement. But we can, and it helps clarify things, I think, see this very clearly in the writings of Herbert Marcuse. So for Marcuse, a body of lies dominates American life. The lies are there to stop us seeing our real needs. The lies are the fake psychological wants for status and security, or the fake psychological insecurities about appearance or sexuality. These lies manufactured and then satiated through advertising. This society of lies, this creation of fake wants, is so all-encompassing that society becomes uniform or one-dimensional, as the title of his 1964 book puts it. Society satisfies fake wants, and so man forgets his real needs and doesn't rebel against society. Marcuse, of course, of course, is able to identify man's real obscured needs. He's the one who knows. Thinking he's following Freud, he argues that these real needs are erotic, that is, creative or loving. In reality, Marcuse turns Freud on his head. Instead of, as for Freud, the healthy person understanding the demands of society and attempting to reconcile them with the demands of their own ego, their own needs. The healthy person for Marcuse is one who shakes off the false demands of society and unleashes the true erotic potential of their own ego. Now, as Christopher Lash, I think, indicated, the desire to weaken or abolish society or the existence of a weakened and abolished society doesn't emancipate the individual ego it leads to the individual becoming enslaved by their ego. Marcuse's psychology, I think we can see now looking back, is in many respects a sort of precursor to what Lash described as the culture of narcissism. If I could just uh, go into uh, just a touch more detail on this, it's, it's very interesting because Alistair McIntyre published a brilliant and very short uh, critical essay of uh, of Marcuse. He pointed out that Marcuse was sort of a blend of Marx and Freud, and in a way that was unflattering to both. It brought out the worst elements of them. This is, this is largely true, but isn't entirely right. It's, it's more that he takes, I think, the wrong parts of Marx and Freud. He, in a sort of weird way, takes Freud's sociology, his obsession with the fact that culture has to repress, and he takes Marx's psychology. And this is obviously in contrast to Lash, who takes Freud's psychology and Marx's sociology are the sort of strong parts of the, of the two. Anyway, at, at any rate, faced with this one-dimensional society of psychologically duped masses, Marcuse argued, as one commentator puts it, that, quote, the only hope of liberating American minds was to ban the lies entirely and convert schools into centers for the correction of thought. Marcuse is indeed refreshingly honest about this. He asks, is there any alternative but a dictatorship of the elite over the people? This is obviously a rhetorical question to which the answer is no, there's no alternative. We're gonna to have to have an elite dictatorship over the people. Above all, Marcuse is motivated by a desire to remake society and produce 
what he's identified as the missing revolutionary agent. Missing, the, rev the revolution has gone missing because the masses are too satisfied by the false society. The elite that Marcuse speaks of is, as it were, the revolutionary vanguard, but there's no revolutionary subject for it to be the vanguard of. So Marcuse and his friends, the vanguard, they have to make the missing revolutionary subject, the missing revolutionary agent, through a, a radical program. So these are hence Marcuse's demands, take over the university, submit universe, uh, students to cultural and erotic reprogramming, practice what he called repressive tolerance, which was uh, banning books or not allowing, as we'd say, no platforming uh, discriminatory or elite positions, and seek out any social outcasts who might have slipped through the net of the one-dimensional society and its psychological programming, hence the focus on dropouts, tramps, sex workers, whatever your sort of favoured uh, minority slip through the net is. So in Marcuse and the sort of radical psychological critique of mass society that he was so emblematic of, we see the resistance, uh, sorry, we see the resemblance to the platonic model. The intellectual discovers the true and the rational and remakes society on that basis. But by this point, the in increasing intensification of psychological thinking has turned the platonic model literally inside out. Instead of the truth in all the Plato's metaphors residing up and out there in the eternal forms, for Marcuse, the truth resides deep in here, buried in the mind. So to condense what was of course a more historical process, a more complicated historical process than I've had time to go into, we see the growth and the consolidation of a paradigm for explaining and then changing the behavior of the masses. This paradigm is fundamentally psychological in the sense that it locates the incapacity of the masses in their emotions and their psychology. They're not just wrong or irrational, but also not well. This crowd psychology identifies the irrational and the subconscious with the mass and the conscious and the rational with the elite. It therefore has this twofold character of being explanatory and controlling. Even theories of the crowd like Georges Sorel, who I haven't had time to go into, but who saw in the crowd the possibility of revolution, even those who seem to have so much faith in the possibility of the crowd and the masses, they require the presence of an irrational myth, in Sorel's case, the myth of the general strike, to shake the masses from their slumber and force them into action. Indeed, this focus on myths, symbols, images, statues, is one of the most powerful legacies of the psychological theories of crowds. Now, just to end, I, I wanna go into something that I think underlies these visions. So underlying these visions of either technocrats who harness the irrationality of the crowd like Le Bon or Bernays, the radicals who remake society according to the hidden laws of consciousness that they've discovered like Marcuse, or of a revolutionary elite who shock the crowds into the consciousness of their freedom, such as in Sorel. There's a sort of, there's a, a predicament that's worth reflecting on here because it's not an entirely unsympathetic predicament that these intellectuals face. The predicament they face is that of mass society. Now, of course, at worst, we can understand mass society as a mass uniformity of culture. We're all part of one culture and we all think alike. But we don't have to have such a sort of snobbish or elitist view of mass culture to see 
that mass society is in some sense a more basic sociological fact. It's the absence of distinctive structural social groupings. It's a disarticulated society, not one structured by interlocking social forms and hierarchies. It's a society that's no longer influenced by tradition, authority or religion, nor by traditional authoritative or religious powers. This, I think, has some purchase as a genuine sociological description of, the, of society as it's unfolded. And so for the elites, this the, the theories of crowds, they promise a way of pulling the levers of mass society when the levers aren't there anymore. They can instead manipulate psychological tendencies. As much as this strikes us as nefarious, it's also a kind of response, a kind of pitiful response to their absence of authority and the absence of their integration into traditional channels of social control, such as the church or the union. These elites had lost the ability to command assent. Likewise, for non-elites, the theory of crowds promised a way of changing and remaking society at a time when forms of organization or channels for directing change were weakening or absent. The non-elites and the political radicals, they lost their feeling for political persuasion, lost their feeling that political persuasion could be successful. What unites both is the feeling of confronting a mass society where there are no constituted groups that can be appealed to based on defined interests. So instead of this, instead of that, they have to peer into people's minds, try and manipulate and stir the masses to action through images and symbols. So in this mass society, psychology becomes a kind of constant temptation, I think, and not, and, but what I'm stressing is that it starts as, as a sociological explanation, which is kind of sympathetic. Whatever the truth of that, whatever the value in an analysis of mass society though, I think the key thing to remember, going back to John Kerry, who I mentioned when we opened, is that, quote, the masses do not exist. The mass is a metaphor which denies to people the individuality which we describe to ourselves and to the people we know. The overwhelming feeling, you may have had this too, reading some of this literature, is one of mystification. Poetic phrases, underhand similes, subtle metaphors, they're all introduced to give the crowd a meaning, that give the mass a feeling as a distinctive social group, a sort of reality that it doesn't have. It's therefore sort of up to us, as it were, to reclaim the individual interpersonal perspective. The standpoint of persuasion, action, argument, free discourse is not one that we can drop in favor of talk of drives, forces, and impression management, just because societies become too big or too impersonal to control. Indeed, it may only become too big or too impersonal if we all give up on those essential elements of democratic society. Whatever the pretenses of mass psychology to reveal to us the uniformity of the human mind, we are not constituted by our inner desires and drives, however predictable they may be. And so we cannot, in the last analysis, be understood through mass psychology. Indeed, we disprove the perspective of mass society and the psychological theories that have come to control it each and every time we reveal ourselves or solicit the revelation of others. In other words, the responsibility of freedom, the freedom to do and to say and the responsibility to make the world a fit place for other people to do and to say, 
That's the proper starting point for politics, not the psychology of the masses that I've outlined here today. Thanks. You've been listening to The Frightful Crowd, The Psychology of the Masses. The lecturer was Jacob Reynolds. The talk was given at the Academy 2020 as part of a series exploring the theme Psychology and Democracy. You'll be able to catch up with all the lectures right here on this Ideas Matter podcast, so do make sure and subscribe through your usual channels. The Battle of Ideas Educational and Citizenship Charity runs a number of projects, including Debating Matters, Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, a forum for under-25s to explore historical and contemporary ideas related to freedom. To find out more, please do visit our website, theboi.co.uk. If you value our work promoting engagement with ideas and boosting the space for discussion and debate, and if you can manage a donation to support us, then we'd be most grateful. Please just hit the donate button on the website. Ideas Matter podcast will return with the next in our Psychology and Democracy series, a lecture on B.F. Skinner's 1948 utopian novel, Walden 2. <laughs>